Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. Thank you for that wonderful theme music from Hannon Kime. Welcome back, James. Um, it's a big day. My book, Dare to Know, just came out. We had a big party for it yesterday the, at the bookseller here in Chicago. Didn't see my co-host there, but that's okay. I'm sure you had a lot of a uh, lot, lot of important things to do. What, what were you doing that night? I host trivia every week. Trivia. Oh, the, a, a word which literally means unimportant. It actually means uh, three roads. <laughs> that that's the true trivia isn't it it is <laughs> yeah, you know actually now that i think of it of course it i mean try and via yes uh why 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 does why does uh three roads mean something unimportant and uh, by the way uh that was a master class in deflection good job uh because well originally they talked about sort of the three branches of knowledge and they were the trivia and then you were expected to know them and then over time the meaning sort of reversed to me and the things you're not necessarily supposed to know but uh, anyway so how was your party james it was good a bunch of people came uh, we did it outside at the bookseller uh, in, in beautiful lincoln square and so we brought cupcakes a bunch of friends came friends you know some strangers stopped by and bought the book i've met a lot of people the uh weekend before that at in chicago they have printers row literary festival which i was invited to be part of and of course your wife betsy was also there uh interviewing uh daniel handler uh better known to many probably as lemony snicket of series of unfortunate events and so i uh, did my panel and uh i was kind of hanging out with some friends and then Betsy said, oh, why don't you, uh, she texted me. She said, why don't you come hang out with me at this uh, wine bar? I said, I'd love to. And so I come over there and who should she be there with but Daniel Handler. And so the three of us uh, get along great. I uh, had met him briefly once before when I did a kind of a performance with him at the Chicago Humanities Festival that kind of went horribly awry. Uh, I can talk <laughs> about that later if you want. But then um, she, uh, Betsy left, your wife left, and she left me in the good graces of Daniel Handler, who we proceeded to hang out for two and a half hours. Uh, he bought me many expensive wines, and we I played uh, my favorite game of chance that I love so much. Am I charming or am I drunk? <laughs> um, I think he was playing the same game. Uh, we played to win or lose and it was a lot of fun that's great yes she enjoyed hanging out with them i'm glad to hear that you did too sorry i couldn't make it to that either i was shepherding i was ferrying my kids from place to place uh, with their overscheduled saturdays but that's wonderful well it sounds like you're having a wonderful book release you're having a wonderful series of fortunate events ah, and and i'll have you know among those fortunate events dare to know got featured in the guardian the Guardian people in their best recent fantasy, horror, and science fiction roundup. This is The Guardian. Uh, explores questions of free will, psychology, and human history in a fascinating, compulsively readable thriller. Says The Guardian. So if you, dear, dear listener, I don't ask much of you, but buy my book. I beg you. And read it. Buy his book. Yes, indeed. All right. So, James, what are we here to talk about tonight? <laughs> what are we here to talk about, Matt? I so once again, occasionally. So I should apologize that it has once again been a month since we had an episode. We had a guest who was ready to come on and be our guest, and then had to 
delay and has delayed uh, a couple times. Hopefully, he will go ahead and be our guest next time. But in the meantime, I said, hey, let's pick some advice I've given over the years and debate it, which is one of the main things we do on this podcast. And I said, here's a piece of advice that I gave a long time ago that did not make it into my book that is relatively fresh for many of you out there. This was a series of blog posts I did back in 2014, January 2014, called How to Give and Receive Notes. And so I asked you to read through the series of blog posts, and then I figured we could have a little debate about it. How how are you feeling? Are you feeling like this is something you could debate about, or are you <laughs> thinking that this is undebatable? No, I, I certainly can, uh, especially since I I, <laughs> I asked you for notes in the final draft of Jared and No, and you refused to give them. I so, did. <laughs> I, I you read I, the first fifty pages. You said you didn't take any of my advice from last time. I'm not going to read the rest. Um, still kind of smarts. Uh, so uh, yeah, let's let's go in and talk about this. <laughs> Is this whole thing going to be about that? No, I wanted just to get that out of the way because I can't go on talking about it without bringing that up. Yes, it okay. Still hurts. Let's this in. All right, I gave you. I read that novel twice. I gave you notes on it twice, and that's the most you can ask from anybody. Okay, so this is—is is it the most I can ask from a friend? I don't know. Well, we'll never know. Okay, we'll go never on. Know. <laughs> How to give and receive notes. Okay, so I did this six-part series on how to give and receive notes. I dealt with it in terms of six different pieces of advice. So let's go ahead and work through those. So the first one I talked about is how you need to be calm. I talked about- right, So right now you're talking about how to give notes, right? And yes. then eventually you're going to work your way around to how to receive notes. Yes. So the first five of these are about how to give notes. And the last one is about how to receive notes. And so first I talked about how you have to deal with your emotional reaction, how I think often when people give notes, they are not dealing with the fact that what they have read is causing emotions inside them and they are giving sort of a, they're giving an emotional reaction to what they've read without grappling with their emotions. So for instance, I say that, I say we inject too much emotion into our notes because we're unwilling to admit to those emotions. This is interesting because usually we think about notes in terms of like, oh, there's so many, it's going to elicit so many emotions in the person getting the notes. But you're saying, actually, there's just as many emotions churning in the person who's giving the notes. Yes. So for instance, I say that if, if you think it's bad, then you will feel insulted. You will say, why are you wasting my time with this half-assed crap? If you think it's just so-so, you will feel frustrated. You'll be like, this is like reading the phone book. If you feel like the work is too blatantly emotional itself, you will feel manipulated. You'll be like, stop telling me how to feel. If the work is good, then you will feel vulnerable. You'll be like, this makes me feel really uncomfortable in a good way. Or if it's too good, you'll feel threatened. You'll be like, oh, who does this asshole think he is? You know, this, <laughs> I think this, this, is, this, is a, this is a look into the mind of Matt Bird. Yes, more it than is. Ordinary humanity. But um, let's let that pass. I, I, don't, I don't know if this is the way that I feel when I'm giving notes. Um, but How, I, how I, do you I, feel when you're giving notes? Do you, you, none of these ring true to you. These are not emotions you've felt while giving notes. Um, I have felt frustrated that somebody doesn't know like the abcs of how to like i i get strangely frustrated over bad grammar or or like you know like put like having dialogue like bad punctuation like if if like something <laughs> something has like like uh, so no, no, petty no here but uh, like that like this 
we've all read a million books, right? So we all know that when a piece of dialogue concludes, like you don't do a quote mark and then a period. It's a period and then the quote mark. To see I see how it is. A period, a, to see a, a, a quote mark and then a period seems to me like, have you ever read a book in your life? You know that it's period, then quote mark. You know that. You, you're, you're trying to make me angry. So yeah, my- <laughs> This is exactly what I'm talking about. So I do that. I do periods outside of quote marks, which is a personal preference of mine. And it makes you- Because you think you're British or something or- It makes you angry. It is. And if you're willing to get angry about that, I think it's safe to say you can get angry about anything. Uh huh. And you have to. I mean, one of the things I'll get to here is that one of the hardest things to do is to give a note once and then move on. And it's it's going to be really hard when you're giving notes on something where you're like, you're pushing this button and I don't like you pushing that button. And then the same manuscript will push that button 50 more times. And each time you'll get like more and more upset and you'll be like, you push the button again. You push the button again. And as if the person can hear your notes and is choosing <laughs> yeah. to do it again every time you say, don't do yeah. it. <laughs> you sounded like Garrett from Community there. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of, you know, getting all your notes at one time and did yeah. not hear you complain about it the first time you did it. Yeah. I think it's also a problem if like, you're giving notes on a genre that you don't like, or if yes. you disagree with the program that the writer is trying to do, if you don't think that's like a good idea. Yes, which is super hard. Like I just, I, we were going to try to get an episode out of your notes on Undone, my old superpower script, and you just did not approve of the entire enterprise to an extent that there just we weren't going to be able to get an episode out of it. There was just a palpable loathing that you feel for superpower stories, I think. For, it was basically a superhero. It's a superhero story. I will say that it, it's a rare superhero movie that, or, or you know, or story that I like. I mean, there are some that I, I guess I, I must have liked at some point along the lines. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think even in that, I, I gave some valuable notes. I think like, but here's the thing. I am not a professional note giver. I am like, I am not somebody who people like, I was uh, teaching at uh, like uh, I had this thing I was taught a fantasy and science fiction class at Northwestern for like not the college students but for like gifted junior high school students or high school students for like the summer camp. And I did it for three years and I gave a lot of notes to kids, and so it made me very gentle with kids, but it also built up all kinds of uh, uh, energy, excess energy to take out on adults. <laughs> But I eventually had to stop it. And I've, I know I've mentioned this on an earlier episode because I think I, I stopped being enthusiastic about it and I started being kind of dogmatic. And a kid called me out at one point and I was like, this is the last year I'm going to do it <laughs> uh, because I because I, I, you, you can run a class on like cult of personality for a while out of like with pure energy and people will be on your side. Say, My God, you know, he you know, he might have a weird ideas, but like he's so into teaching us. But once it kind of you lose that naive energy and you're doing it for the third or fourth year, you lose your beginner's shine. Yeah. But so, I mean, so that's one thing that's going on here. Uh, you were talking about giving notes professionally is that in between writing this series and between now, I had a whole career as a professional notes giver, which I have recently tapered off. So this was still, I was still talking about in this series, peer to peer notes, not uh -huh. paid notes. And 
I, and I basically sort of poo-poo the whole idea of paid notes here. (laughs) I'm like, disinterested notes are generally better. But then I did not intend to get into it, but so many people just wrote and saying, please let me pay you for notes, that I was like, okay, let's do it. And then I recently tapered off because I realized that I wasn't charging enough and that if I did charge enough, I would have to charge like 10 times the amount I was charging. (laughs) And some people would- Why don't you just do that and see what happens? I mean- there's a lot of people who pay you for notes. I mean, I would just like- feel terrible. I would feel terrible charge, charging the amount of money I would need to charge to make a living at it. The notes aren't worth that. And it would be, and I would feel like the world's biggest heel. Matt Bird selling himself again. Okay, go on. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so no, I'm not selling myself anymore. But yes, so I have gone through a whole notes journey since originally writing these pieces back in 2014. I mean, you used to give me just like, I can't read this anymore in all caps in the margins. Like, I don't tell me you didn't give me these notes. I can show them to you. Uh, uh, these are some of the notes given after 2014. So th- th- we're showing the face version of Matt on this episode, but there is a heel version that is always waiting in the wings. I mean, we have both given notes to each other that... I was like, these notes are too rough. I mean, I think it's a problem because we're friends and we give each other a lot of crap. And when we give each other notes, we tend to give each other a lot of crap in our notes. And you have reacted in the past going like, these notes are hurtful to me. You have given me too much crap in these notes. You are not giving me notes from a place of good note giving you're giving me these notes from friends giving each other crap and you have definitely done the same with me that there is there are definitely things where i've got notes from you and i'm greatly appreciative of notes that's one thing i'm going to talk about is how you have to be so appreciative of notes even if you don't like the notes but i mean because nobody ever gives a note for any bad reason you know nobody is ever giving you a note to attack you people only give you notes it's a lot to ask to give somebody notes people only do it if they care about your work but there have been cases of you giving me good notes and we've gotten good episodes out of that. And then, but that tends to be on projects where I've given up on it a long time ago, stuff like involuntary. I felt like we had a very good yes and process with involuntary because that was sort of like a joke because it was the worst thing I'd ever written. But there are other things where I'm like, okay, this project means a lot to me and I need your notes to help me decide where to go on this. And that was not a good process. I I guess there is like along with what you're talking about in these blog posts, you factor in the actual personal relationship between the two of them. And that's why you say in one of these blog posts, the best notes don't come from friends. They come from colleagues or acquaintances. Yes. I think that, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, or again, I was not really talking about or thinking about paid notes when I did this. I think if you find someone really good to do paid notes, that then that can be really useful. But I think that ultimately your best bet as a writer is you'd better be good at reading colleagues' manuscripts and giving notes. Or, you know, I think it's good to join critique groups. I had a very good screenwriting critique group back in the day, back in New York City, and we were really good at giving each other notes. And we didn't know each other. We weren't friends. This is our only relationship to each other. And I think that's ideal. I think relying on paid notes is problematic because it's expensive. And ultimately, most people I gave notes to were like, I've paid other people for notes and they were not good. I got a lot of praise for the notes I gave because people were like, these are much better than most paid notes are. But I think that ultimately you have to be able to give and receive good free notes if you're going to survive as a writer. Because you want... But I wonder, is it the fact that you have to give notes? Because 
I find that the worst notes I get, frankly, are from other writers. Ah, so that's interesting. Who gives better notes than other writers? Just normal readers. Um, when they say, this is where I got bored. Uh, yeah. This is where I got confused. That's all you want to hear. The last thing you want to hear is a writer giving you their advice because, and I do the same thing when I give advice, I just try to make their thing into something that I would make. Yeah. Um, and, and I and I try to stamp, I say, oh, what if you do this? What if you do that? Oh, it'd be so cool, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I just kind of uh, absorb it into my own creative bubble and at first when i do that I, I start giving ideas like oh my gosh and if you had this character come in and they could do this and that could totally connect up with that other thing and at first i could see the person getting excited that i'm throwing all these ideas at them and then i could see them slowly get less and less enthusiastic about it because i'm simply taking over their project and telling them how they should write it right but whereas the what you want is a normal person not some brain damaged person who writes but a normal person who just reads to say I didn't understand this part. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, and even seeing things that we think of as like kind of unsophisticated, like I didn't like that guy, you, you know, like, what are you talking about? You shouldn't care about whether somebody is unlikable or not. You should care about whether you believe, care and invest, but like just having the naive reaction that is more coarse grained than fine grained, I think is more valuable than another writer who, unless they have like attained some kind of enlightenment that neither you nor I have attained yet, uh, can simply uh, give notes in a more Olympian way that is more disinterested. But I mean, it's so, I mean, obviously one of the, I generally think in terms of like you're giving somebody notes because then in the future you're exchanging notes. You know, you're like, I'll give you notes on my project. You give me notes on your project. It's much harder to get random schmoes to read your work if you're not, if you can't give them any notes in return. On the contrary, it's much easier. The thing I hate is when people say, would you read my script? Would you read my book? And like, after you become published, you have a lot of friends who come out of the woodwork and they say, would you read this for me? And then you do. And you give notes, and then you lose that friend. Yeah. Uh, um, and this has happened to me time and time again. I don't want to give notes. I want to have people who are not writers give notes because they are a going to give better advice because it's it's more coarse grained, and b they're not going to want me to do something for them in return that's a note giving. And like, I, I, what do the people called you out about this in the content in the comments in these uh, blog posts? We mentioned this on. They, they were like. Well, I don't like to uh, think about it in terms of like giving notes in order to get social capital. I give notes in order to kind of understand more about myself, said the person in the comments. I forget who it was. Uh, or to kind of, you know, sharpen myself. For me, I don't feel that it sharpens me. Um, and I, I and I, I think the idea of like just doing it in an instrumental way, like you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I think you're never you're never going to be coming from a pure place i mean this is the the old matt bird james kennedy argument like do does anybody ever do something unselfishly <laughs> i think they do and you think they don't and you think everything is transactional and i don't and you say well the reason i give notes is so somebody else will give me notes and uh, i think well i give not for me i would say i give notes because i care about this person and i want them to succeed i've had friends like there are like manuscripts that are sitting in my inbox that i of friends that I should give them notes. And I've told them I'm not gonna be able to do anything for a while, but I'll get around to it sooner or later. But I'm not doing it because I'm hoping that they are going to look at my manuscript later. Right. I mean, I think you may- Because I don't want something. them to, frankly. <laughs> yeah, because you would rather get notes from non-writers. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. I mean, I think that ultimately 
it's hard to convince friends to give you notes. And some of the notes that you got from me that you didn't like were notes where I, you know, you asked me for notes and I said, no, I'm not going to give you notes on that. And then, you know, you asked over and over again. And then (laughs) I was like, and I told you on the notes that, that you hated the most of mine, I said, I don't want to read your manuscript. I don't want to give you notes. And you asked me, you know, 10 more times. And then I said, if I give you notes, you're not going to like them. I'm not in a good mood. I'm not open to reading people's stuff right now. You don't want my notes. And you said, yes, I do. I want your notes. And then I gave you notes that were pissy and you were hurt by them. You found them very hurtful. It's hard. It's hard getting notes from people, especially if you're not being in a transactional way. And the danger is that you're going to get people is that you have to ask people too many times and that you can get people who feel backed into it. You're a special case because critiquing stories is your thing. So you're not just anyone. It's not like I came up to a random person and said, please give me notes, please give me notes, please give me notes. You have based your entire persona ever since, you know, 2008 or whatever, saying I'm the person who knows how stories work. Here's my blog, which I, you know, contributed a lot to and then read your book and gave you copious notes on. It it was not out of the ordinary or unheard of for me to ask you, but you, But I think you're a special case. You're not just some other writer. You're the person who says, I'm the guy who knows how stories work. So it's funny. So, I mean, this whole thing is turning so contentious, of course, which is the whole thing that... uh, I think think we're being pretty polite. I think we're being polite, but I think there is a lot of pain from the past is being dredged up. So let's go ahead and move on to the next thing I say, which is that I think you have to be charitable in your notes. I talk about how like often people are writing something that is really sort of bold or has a lot of attitude toward it. And it's very easy to go like, oh, okay, so you've got a lot of attitude. Writing has attitude. Your writing has personality. Therefore, you have attitude. You have personality. And I am overwhelmed by it. I am like, I say a bold writing style is just that, a style. And the writer underneath it might still be very sensitive. Showing someone your writing is like showing your diary. You have inevitably put a lot of your hidden emotional life onto the page, both intentionally and unintentionally. And it's painful for anyone to have that judged. Even if it seems like they've puffed up their chest and dared you to take a swing, don't go for the gut punch. It's very easy to read something and not realize. I mean, I, th- I think it's just very easy to not realize what a sensitive thing it is to show somebody your work. And it's Mm -hmm. easy to forget that, especially if the writing has a lot of personality, the writing has a different personality than the person is probably actually feeling inside. So, I mean, I'm just saying, don't be confrontational in your notes. Don't be derisive in your notes. Don't be flippant in your notes. Even if you're used to kidding around with the writer. So this is exactly what we've encountered with our own notes to each other. Never use dismissive words like stupid, lame, lazy, shitty, terrible, or rotten. And... Certainly you've used words like that in your notes to me, and I think I've used words like that. I don't think I've ever used, I don't tend to use those words, but I have been confrontational or derisive or flippant in some of my notes to you. I say, most importantly, never imply that any choice was made out of laziness, no matter how much you suspect that to be the case. Remember how hard this is. Nobody ever finished a manuscript by being lazy. It may be worthless, but that doesn't mean it was effortless. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I can't disagree with that, right? So, all right, let's move on to my third thing I said, which is, so I talk about how you need to be persuasive and 
how like you need to sell your notes. You are a salesman for these notes. You are, I, I'll talk about parts three and four, how you're trying to create buy-in for your notes. You're trying to persuade this person that these notes are worthwhile. And so I talk about things you should not do. You should not give notes based on rules the writer hasn't accepted. So if you say, according to Sid Field, this plot point should happen on page 15, not on page 45, and then they'll respond with, I prefer the sequence approach, or you've misidentified which plot point is which, or don't be a page Nazi. Don't give notes based on marketability. If you say no one will ever buy a story like this, they'll respond, well, I don't write for the market. Nobody knows anything. Genius is never appreciated in its own time. Don't give notes based on assumption of so this is another thing that you, a lot of the stuff I'm going to be saying today, you're going to be like, really, you're saying this, Matt, you, <laughs> no. I, I, I really feel that you, you, you've been like all about James, we can't be contentious in this podcast anymore. And then you're like, James, I've, I've got a brilliant idea. This is going to be our next topic. I like, really the thing that I am most uh, an emotional live wire about with you. Okay. okay. <laughs> it's true. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know what you thought was going to happen, but I uh, don't know. I don't know. I can't imagine. Like we, we, we had a gigantic falling out last year about this very thing. <laughs> we uh, did. Uh, so then I say at number three, this is something you always, you always accuse me of. I say, don't give notes based on assumptions about the writer's intentions. Ah, yes. Say, you talk about that. You say like, oh, I know what Ryan Johnson was thinking when he made The Last Jedi. He was saying, fuck you to J.J. Abrams. Then J.J. Abrams did the next Star Wars movie. He was like, fuck you to Ryan Adams. Ryan Johnson was like, what? You don't know their thoughts you don't know what's going on in their heads like that that is like that does not that that is not a, a valuable thing to do is to try to psychologize or read the brains of the creator you don't so, know yes. what's going on in there you have to think you have to think of their brain as a black box and you don't have access to it yes so i for instance i say for instance you shouldn't say you're trying to write a horror movie but this feels like a spoof and then they'll say good that means it's subversive so I say, oh, you know, you know what that really infuriated me in that one of those Oxier episodes. He was like, "Sometimes I feel that the work doesn't care." Like he was talking about David Lynch's stuff. Like the work, like the movie itself, doesn't care whether under I understand it or not. And I was like, "Oh, a piece of art can't care. <laughs> it's just a piece of art. It there there might be you you could try to psychologize creator, but you don't know what they were thinking." Um, so you, you you but like to 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 go from psychologizing the creator to psychologizing a thing that doesn't even have consciousness is insane and and so but people do it all the time yes. um and, and but you can't do it and you shouldn't do it Yes. And then I say, don't give notes based on a hypothetical audience. If you say fans of broad comedy won't like these kind of scenes, they'll say, well, they don't know what they want until I show it to them so I, I talk about instead you should give I statements, you know, just don't focus on pre-established expectations for what a writer should do or what a writer should or what a story should be. Don't focus on how you think other people react. Instead, focus on what this writer is trying to do in this work and the effect it had on you, the reader, and, and you this, alone. And this is why other writers are terrible notes givers. Yeah. Um, th because they think, oh, I see what you're doing. You did A. That means I'm going to see B and C. But you did D. <laughs> and it's an interesting choice, but uh, it, and it's, it's just like most people like are, are are more heterogeneous and frankly more interesting thinkers and writers, especially writers who've read too many rule books or have gone to school in creative writing. Like uh, like people like all kinds of weird things. 
um, that that go off in all kinds of crazy directions. And writers are always playing catch up with a culture that outpaces them. Um, and and so it, it's better. Again, I'm going to bang this drum again and again to uh, get notes from somebody who's not a writer. But another thing uh, that you didn't mention, and you got you kind of got in a argument in the comment section about this is that somebody said i think very astutely if mike w in the notes said you should ask the writer to tell you about his or her movie like outside of like before we even give notes and i don't know if it was before you read the thing or maybe after you read the thing but have them give a praises of what they were going for and then you know better what they were going for and you could tailor your notes according to that i mean you can write a bunch of things before you hear that maybe maybe read the thing and then like uh put together some rough notes and then ask them what were you trying to do here and then they tell you and then you kind of tailor your notes to that but you kind of resisted that in the notes in the comments so yes so this mike w i just reread the comment talks about how you might give somebody notes on saying like, oh, here's how to make this into an effective thriller. And they're like, well, no, it was supposed to be a comedy. You don't even know what I was trying to do with it. And so you've got to ask. He says, read it first and then ask ask them, okay, what were you trying to do? I found that generally when I was giving paid notes that there were certain cases where after I read it, I had to ask them, okay, I'm not sure what kind of notes to give you. Tell me more about what you want this project to be. Oh, so you came around to agree with Mike W because in the comments here, you, you kind of disagreed with him. Oh, well, that's funny. So uh, yeah, I'm reading through these comments. JS says the same thing you were saying, saying also it's a small point, but for me personally, my motivation to give notes is never simply to build up social capital for when I might need them later myself. I give notes because I'm genuinely good at it because I learn something every time and yeah. because I want to help the friends who come to me. Some of them are nearly as good at reciprocating. Some of them would be totally wrong for certain kinds of stories. So it's not a strict quid pro quo for me at all. So <laughs> generally speaking, my tendency to see life as quid pro quo is once again, uh, causing some discrimination between us. And between me and JS, JS, by the way, was such a good commenter on the early days of my blog that he was actually thanked in my first book. I he yeah, I, I wasn't, guess, but he was. Yeah. Yes. Well, you were a blurber and it's hard to think of blurber. You did not give me any of his comments those days as JS did. JS gave me just an insane amount of comments and he was a great guy. Um, and then at some point he disappeared. But so then this is interesting. So, yes, I have not read these comments, this comment discussion since 2014, but you just had me read it. And so. Mike W is like, no, you should ask them what they're trying to do. You shouldn't tell them that you, you know, you should give them notes based on that. And I give some pushback to this and I say, well, sometimes I have had success giving people notes where I'm like, you don't realize what you're doing here. And so I talk about someone, I don't name him, but I'll go ahead and say now it's my friend Will. And one time I wrote a script and it was a script about a black Mormon who was sent to Harlem to recruit more black Mormons and was told, but don't go into the tower projects, whatever you do, it's not safe there. Don't go there. And then he does go there and he falls in love. And I realized like, and I told him like, this is a fairy tale story. This is the princess in the tower. You've got to learn to find the special weapon by going to the tower that you're forbidden to go to. And he was like, Oh, it's a fairy tale story. And he appreciated me telling him that this was a different kind of story than I think he thought he was writing. And then there was another story he wrote about Booker T. Washington. And it was about Booker T. Washington sort of, you know, on what was then the frontier, basically in Alabama, trying to start Tuskegee University. And I was like, okay, so this is basically a Western. 
And he was like, what, this is a Western? And I said, yeah, this is Western. This is, you know, this is what's going on. And he was like, oh, that's such a helpful note. And he really appreciated those notes and wrote great second drafts of those screenplays, one of which You know, it is- might not have been the case that it was a Western, but you were able to say something that sent him off in a different productive direction. Yes. But I, I, I resist the idea of like, you were wrong about this category. Actually, it belongs in that category. Sounds a bit too pat. You probably just opened up a set of options to him that he hadn't thought of. Yes, yes. And I think that 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 was an ideal situation. But there are less than ideal situations that can arise where you are saying, oh, let me tell you what you're doing here, even though you don't know. And obviously, that can go very wrong. Yeah. but So I think it's best to ask them. What were you doing? Well, yes. What were you going for? And then craft your notes based on that and not try to psychologize. Or the, the, Their brain should be a black box to you. That's another reason why your friends shouldn't read your stuff is because they'll say, oh, you put that in because we were having that discussion just the other day about <laughs> how much you dislike Bob Dylan. And oh, you put that in because I know that friend of yours, you're referring to her in that character. <laughs> and but it's like, no, but all the, the thing is, like for an artist, everything is grist, right? And, and so and everything is material that gets brought into the story and chomped up and made and transformed and made into something else. And and hopefully something unrecognizable. And but if you if it's somebody who knows you too well, they know all of your reference points. They know all of the dumb in jokes they say. They know the stuff that you obsessively say all the time and your little hobby horses. However, somebody who is just a colleague or just a normal reader doesn't know all your hobby house horses, and it seems very fresh to them. Like one of my friends is reading Dare to Know. And she was like, "Oh, this one part." I remember you saying this at a dinner party, you know, like, uh, like some rant that I, that I did or like, or it sounds like when you hold forth about blah, blah, blah. And she was right. But sometimes you just kind of try stuff out in real life and you say, Oh, that worked in one way and didn't work in another. I'm going to like kind of write it down. But like a friend is not going to be since because they're close to you, they're not going to be able to have the judgment. Yeah, no, that's true. And Oh, and it can be totally annoying reading something going like, ah, this is you doing that rant again that you always do. <laughs> you know? <Yep>. But to <laughs> to John Johnerson of Johnville, um, they don't know you. And so to them, it's totally fresh and cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I think it is fascinating rereading. I, I loved my commenters back then. And, uh, well, they, that, those were the, that was the golden age of blogs. It was We're the golden no age there. of blogs. It was. And uh, it was much easier to get comments back then. I mean, generally speaking, when I was giving paid notes and I sent someone an email saying, tell me more about what you're doing before I send you notes, that was a bad sign. <laughs> like, like, Well, I think the problem is that you did it by email. I think yeah. that, that is something that has to happen in a discussion. Because if you're doing it in an email, you're asking them to do more writing. And they're, they're not going to just say from their heart what they're trying to do uh, with all the like starts and stops and kind of like emotional cues. They're going to write up their elevator pitch or whatever. They're going to write up their synopsis. They're going to write up their mission statement and send that to you and try to get it all perfect. And that's not what you want. You want them to, in the moment, off the top of their head, try to enunciate what they're trying to do. And that will give you much more truth. Well, no, I... Do- 
I got Did you some... do everything purely by email? You didn't do anything yeah, over the this phone? Yeah, this was all purely by email. I would very rarely give phone consultations, but for the most part, it was over email. You know, what would often happen is I would go like, I'd be like, okay, could you sum up the story in a page? And often it would be like, okay, I read your novel and I didn't really, I had a hard time understanding what was going on or I had a hard time, you know, grasping it or grokking it. And could you sum it up in a page before I give you your notes? And often they would sum it up, quote unquote, in a page. And half the stuff on that page would not be in the, in the book or in the script. And I'd be like, oh, okay. Like, this is just not there. <laughs> like This uh-huh. is just by trying to make it more succinct, you are introducing material that is not actually in the novel. And you are telling a more compelling story than you have told on the page. And, yeah, but, and I think, but I think this is part of why, I mean, I had a, I think that there is something social in us that we need to have the human voice. We need to, and it, like a phone is a bad substitute for in-person, but I think there has to be that real life give and take. Like when I, like I had a great professor in college, professor Cronin and or Dr. Cronin, we would always, we'd turn in our themes or our, you know, our papers or whatever. And he'd send it back to you with all these notes. And then you were obliged. You had to go into his office and he was like, you know, a million years old. And he had been at Notre Dame forever. It was like yellowed, you know, office that smelled of pipe smoke, you know, that in the basement of the library. And you had just to sit there with him for two hours while you, in real life, went over it line by line. I'm not saying you have to do this with your paying customers, but there is something about that social give and take that you cannot do by email. You cannot just do by text or whatever. There is like, you can get to understand what the person is going for without the artifice of purely written communication. And when I taught kids how to do it, I did the same thing with them. I I make sure I sat down with them and tried to understand them and the words in the page. And I think that is essential. I wouldn't say it's essential. I'd say that there's pros and cons of both ways. But yeah, I mean, there certainly have been cases when I was in my running MFA program when you sort of have to hash it out for a while. There can be value to hashing it out verbally until finally you're like, wait, that's it. Wait, wait, go back. What did you just say? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, I mean, I, I, I would say that that is when I, like whenever, when, when a friend does ask me for notes, I write them all up, but I do not give them to them. Ah. And I I keep them. Uh, this is not with you, uh, but like uh, I, I keep them and then I meet them for coffee or wine or whatever. And we sit there and we talk it out. And then we, we a bunch of ideas come out in that. But I don't take any notes. And insofar as anything is valuable to them, they can take notes during that conversation. And that conversation is much more valuable than what I've written down. And I never give them those things that I wrote down. What, oh, that's what, funny important is what happens in that conversation and i mean this is kind of like maybe a chicago improv kind of like it's it's the group mind it's the two people in the room uh of trying to figure something out together it's not just a transmission of bloodless documents uh, electronically going one way and then going the other way yeah i feel like documents are more valuable to me they were certainly more valuable to, I mean, I think that I would have felt terrible charging people money for just a phone conversation when giving people written notes that they can pour over for days or weeks. I think it's more valuable. But I think that there's a case to be made also if it is friends. And sometimes in graduate school, we would hash something out for an hour talking about it, and we would only arrive at the breakthrough after talking about it for a while. 
but sometimes the opposite would happen, you know, and sometimes you try talking it out with somebody and that just doesn't work. Well, I, I guess it depends on the personalities and yeah, I guess it's case by case. But if somebody would insist, please, James, give me the notes, I would adjust them based on the conversation that we had. Right. Um, and, and also it, that gives you the uh, freedom to be as mean as you want in your notes the first time around. It just, and I think the first time time around, I, when you're giving notes, I think you should write into the in the margin. Ah, I can't believe he's doing this again. I think that's fine, just so you can get out that initial reaction. It doesn't necessarily need to be something that the the note receiver sees, but I think it's a, a document that you need for yourself if you're trying to un, trying to come to terms with this thing that they gave you. You know, the only time when I would give people notes where I would like use an exclamation point or a scream is when they would like kill off a beloved character or something where they wanted that reaction, you know, or if their initials were JK. Yes. But I would be like, it's something that would get, that would cause me to lose my cool is when someone would be about to reveal some key piece of information. And then we would jump ahead and we wouldn't get the scene where they revealed that key piece of information. And sometimes this was because it was going to come out later, but sometimes it never came out. They just like, assumed that i would know what happened in that scene uh-huh. <laughs> it seems to me was... you're thinking about a particular thing you have a particular story oh this happened right many now. times this happened okay. many times and i would be like no you have to tell us <laughs> you have to tell us you can't skip over that scene exclamation point <laughs> which was the only time i ever allowed myself to do that uh-huh the but... only time okay uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the only time in my paid notes yeah. Um, so this is right. kind of a valedictory for your paid notes, isn't it? This is kind of like looking back on the career that you had. It is. It is. So, all right. So let's talk about part four, create buy-in. I talk about how, and this is certainly something I did in my paid notes, how I always, I would generally give like five pages of typed single space. No, well, I would, I would mark up the manuscript with at least one note per page, which is really why it was so unprofitable for me because you know if it was a 500 page manuscript i was giving them 500 notes and then and how much would you charge i was charging eventually i was charging three dollars per page you should charge five thousand dollars per manuscript regardless of length yeah that was what i eventually realized so i was giving them like a note per page and then plus i was giving them a letter and the letter would be four to seven pages single spaced and the first page was always just what they were doing well and uh-huh. I was like, let me tell you about why I like this so much. Or sometimes I would phrase it slightly differently. <laughs> you know, let me talk about what you're doing really well. So there was a range from let me tell you why I loved this manuscript so much, or let me talk about what you're doing really well, which means maybe I didn't love the whole manuscript. But because there's always people, by the time you're paying me for notes, you know, you've put a lot into it. Mm-hmm. And there was always a lot of good stuff. There was always, it was very, very rare that I, ha- would, I would have a hard time filling that page. And, and on the other, but also on the other side of that, you're not, you don't like everything, you know, like, like in the same way that I don't like superhero movies, like you don't, you didn't like, what, what didn't you like? That's good. You didn't like Mulholland drive. You know what I mean? There are some yeah. things that you, there are blind spots that everybody has. Well, um, and not and just so, blind spots. There are just things you just don't like. Like maybe the best, maybe the best novel I ever read 
is, I'm proud to say, a genre that I thoroughly dislike. And I could have just said, oh, dear God, not one of these novels. I can't stand these novels. Because it was about a teen assassin. And, like, assassin stories are just the worst. I just can't stand assassin stories. Just the whole, you know. And I, I know like, we've, we've been over this in the podcast. This is like a, 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 some kind of PTSD you have from the 90s uh, million dollar spec script uh, era. Like, yes. Like, it, it, but it, it has nothing to do with, like, the the actual whether something is legitimately good or bad or aesthetically meaningful it has to do with matt bird's particular life journey and i was able to tell this author like i love this novel this is my favorite novel i've read for this service and that's really saying something because i hate this genre <laughs> and i like you know i was offended by it you know i'm offended by that genre like the whole notion of you know you're cheering this person on as they take all these headshots and kill all these people you know that wasn't actually happening in this novel but that's you know the sort of the heart of that genre is and i was like it is amazing i love this but i love this so much but there there were there were other assassin books that i had a harder time that were not great <laughs> i had a hard time because i was like well i should warn you i don't like assassin books and maybe that's coloring my <laughs> reaction to this but i didn't think your concept worked i would have to tell me about that and then there were cases where i was like i don't like this type of concept but i love this and so i had to sort of be aware of that but yeah so this is just the general idea and i don't think you do this right i mean when you give notes you don't say here's everything you're doing great before I tell you what you're not doing as well. Me personally? You personally. Not with you. <laughs> yes. I think you are less concerned with buy-in than I am. You are less no, concerned with... I am less concerned with buy-in when I am dealing with you. I definitely do this with others. Okay, good. <laughs> when I gave you my new book to read, you had a lot of positive things to say. You know, you didn't necessarily say them all up front. You didn't necessarily go like, first let me talk about what I like about it, then talk about what I didn't. But you, I mean, you uh, just—I I don't. I don't feel I have to uh, psychologize with you as much. You've been around the block a couple times. I've given you notes in your other book. You wouldn't have given me your book if you didn't feel that it that I had valuable stuff to add uh, or or say. Um, so I didn't feel I had to create buy-in because I already had buy-in. Right, and I don't think I really do it with you either. <laughs> and, uh, we're at a point now where we don't do this, but I was very glad I did it with people. I think that, generally speaking, a good way to do for notes. Okay, then I talk about, I also tacked on to part four, one last do and don't. And this is, I think, huge. And if there's one thing you take out of this podcast, it is this. And again, this is an example of me giving advice that I myself never follow. And that is, I say, you can mention classic universally beloved works to emulate, but do not ever mention similar projects in development. I am terrible at this. My wife is listening to me record this podcast. I will say she is terrible at this, that we both... Why did you drag her through the mud? Okay. Uh, we both, <laughs> when someone says like, oh, here's what I'm working on, we're like, oh, somebody did something like that. And it is such, we both know we shouldn't do it and we both do it. And I talk about... Do not mention similar projects in development. Do not mention ones that are about to come out. Do not mention recent superficially similar flops. Do not mention cult classics they've never heard of. 
my old film school chums are probably sputtering with rage right now because I was the asshole who always did this. And it took me years to stop, even after several people told me how inappropriate it was. Believe me, no one wants to hear this. It just dampens their enthusiasm and bums them out. And there's no reason to tell them because A, that competing project will probably never come out or be totally transformed by the time it does. B, if that competing project does get made and it's a hit, then that might actually help this project get made. Or C, if that project does come out or already came out and it's flop, then there will still be a market for a better version. So I... Also D, the species under the skin uh, objection, which is they just might be making a completely better version of it. Yes. Yes. Like, under, like, I, I can imagine somebody coming up to the director and writer of Under the Skin and they ask us, what are you working on? I'm working on this. Uh, okay, well, broadly, it's about this person who looks like a normal woman, but actually she's an alien who eats people. And they're like, ha, 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 it's too late, buddy. Uh, I, I saw Species, didn't you? And nobody remembers Species. I, I guess not a lot of people remember Under the Skin, but Under the Skin is a transcendent movie, one of my most favorite movies of all time. And it doesn't matter that Species was made. No, no. And yeah, and I talk about, in my book, I talk about how I wrote a period piece about spies in 1981. And then it was this brilliant original thing where no one was doing anything like that. And then the project died. And then a couple of years later, I found out that there was going to be a very similar project about spies in 1981 called The Americans. And I was like, uh, you know, that means my project is dead. It's never going to come back to life. And then as soon as that came out, somebody called me up who had worked on that project with me. It's like, oh, now there's another show that's had proof of concept that shows this is a good idea. Let's revive your show. <laughs> and <laughs> that this had happened a couple of times in my career. And I've Did seen this happen with uh, uh, Alan Turing. No, the, no, that was that was the opposite case. That was in terms of the Turing thing, like you can't have two biopics about Turing. And so that was killed by a competing project where especially because that one had optioned the biography and mine had not. And so the one that options it is always going to win, which is why I should have taken the $10,000 I won from the Sloan Foundation for that Turing script and use that money to option the book, which I did not do. But so yes, so sometimes a competing project will kill you, but sometimes it revivifies you, which happened more than once. It happened on other things. And like, just don't do it. Just don't. I mean, I'm sure you find yourself doing this too. I did really put my uh, foot in my mouth once. Uh, what was that? This is about something that had already come out. Guy lived in my neighborhood in Chicago and he was a writer. I said, like, oh my gosh, a writer. We should hang out. And he said, yeah. And so he came to one of my parties and I said, so what are you working on? So, uh, well, I, I published this book. It's called Nightfall. Nightfall. What's it about? Well, it's about a world in which like the sun doesn't come every 24 hours. It only comes every 28 years. And I was like, and I was like, but that's but, the Isaac but. Asimov classic science fiction short story, Nightfall. <laughs> and we never became friends after that. Oh, my God. Like, not only has that story been done, it's been done with the same title, you bozo. But, I mean, this guy is a very successful writer. Uh, um, and I, 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 this, is, is, this book did very well. But it was done by Isaac Asimov in 1941. <laughs> that is the ultimate example. You have found the ultimate example of, like, like 
oh, it would be so hard. <laughs> like, that would be the ultimate test of me of could I avoid saying like, really, really, you've never heard of Nightfall by Isaac Asimov, which has that same plot and that same title. Um, uh, uh, but like, I, I, I hope he doesn't listen to this, but like, he, he's, he's fine. Like the, the book fine. did well. I, I guess I was wrong, you know? Yes, you were <laughs> wrong. Yes, there's uh, no reason to ever mention it. <laughs> but but uh, Nightfall, I mean, was his next <laughs> book? Well, there's the four laws of robotics. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, I robot. Me, robot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, me, android. Yeah, I was astonished. <laughs> I, and I, 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 I'd never gained and then lost a friend so quickly in my life. <laughs> yes. Okay. So then my final thing I talk about is be systematic. And I talk about how, like, this is one of the hardest things to do is if you don't like the dialogue, don't let that affect what you have to say about the concept. Don't let that affect, say, what you have to say about character. Like, it's very easy to go, like, yeah, fine. The dialogue's fine. But who cares if I don't like this guy? Who cares if I hate this character? And realizing, like, they may or may not take your notes on one thing but let that just be a note on that one thing and then give them different notes on other things and i talk about how like so in what so it's so this is what i say i say in terms of concept you should give notes like an audience member not like a fellow writer so this is sort of what you were saying yeah concepts you should say did you get it is it a cool idea would you pay for it would you be glad you did if not why not and don't give notes like a writer then i say on character you should give notes like a writer you should you should talk about, okay, I think you're creating a motivation hole here. There's a place where the motivation fails. There's a place where empathy fails, where in order to build up motivation, you're hurting the amount of empathy I'm feeling. But it's it's also good to say things like, I became exasperated with that character on page 45, or I didn't buy, he would do that on page 67. How do you feel about that? I, I think that's fine. I mean, I, I the thing is, I have given notes to people. And my notes, somebody asked me, please give notes. And so I take it really seriously and I give systematic notes. I give like detailed, hope, encouraging, but also kind of like, oh, you should have done this and you should have done that. And it's only effect it seems to have on people is to paralyze them and to put the project away. Well, which and, is, that's the ultimate nightmare is that right, you're right. Give, you give notes that paralyzes somebody and causes someone to put the project away. Right, right. And so I think maybe another thing you should say is like, don't give all the notes that you could. Yeah, that's true. Uh, um, and maybe save it for another iteration if you can bear it. Um, but like I time and again have given every single note I could. And so, oh, you could do this. You could do that. Blah, blah, blah. And here's how, well, how I feel this is going. A, I lose the friend. <laughs> and B, they stop writing. This Wait. has been my experience again and again. <laughs> oh, my um, God. How many, how many writers have you purged out of the world, James? <laughs> Uh, but it's I, I mean it's hard to finish something yes give me a finished thing and i i i don't know i mean i'm a bad note giver uh, um and i the thing is i feel that i know i feel that i'm giving accurate notes but i feel that i'm not giving them what they need yeah. um and and i and, and the thing is i'm it's because my notes are too detailed and I'm trying to process it through what I would do. And I'm giving them too many options and I'm pointing out too many problems and giving too many solutions. And I think that I'm giving, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being helpful by giving them so much text 
Whereas it would have been better if they had given to somebody else and said, I got bored at page 48. And that might have, I think, helped them more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to give notes like that. But I mean, obviously, I sort of, you know, I, in my professional notes career, was a believer in quantity as much as quality. I was giving people, you know, you gave me a 500 page book and I was going to give you 500 notes at least in return. And a lot of those notes are just like, I love this. You're doing this so well. This is great. So when I said one note per page, often it was praise. And, you know, 250 of those notes might just be praise. But 250 of those notes were being like, yeah, I don't know. This isn't working for me. And I would talk about maybe concept, maybe character, maybe structure, maybe scene work, maybe dialogue, maybe tone, maybe theme. And I would talk about where they were getting me and losing me. And Obviously, I worried that I may have overwhelmed some people, but people were paying me so much money, even though it wasn't enough money, that I sort of felt like I've got to at least be able to give them quantity if I can't give them quality. But I know for a fact that very few people got my notes and decided to quit in frustration because I had so much repeat business. And I had so many people who would have go back to me for notes a second time, a third time, a fourth time, <laughs> and uh-huh. things would get much better. And I think, generally speaking, people – now, you have given me notes on things. Wait, wait. That, so you would read people a second time, a third time, a fourth time? Yes. Interesting. Okay, go on. Now, there were projects that you gave me notes on, and you were the only person who ever gave me notes on it, and you were so withering that I never touched that project again. And regretted it and was like, why uh-huh. did I abandon that project just because James gave me withering notes on it? If he abandoned all the projects that I gave him withering notes on, then he would have no career today. <laughs> and, uh, and like, why can't I have the sort of thick skin that James clearly has? I would never give anybody notes the way I give you notes. Good. <laughs> yes. I think it would be interesting to try to revive for episodes of this show some of the projects that your notes were so withering that I gave up on them, like, say, Winter Palace, and go like, all right, what sort of notes should you have given me? How could we have, how could we have made this project come back to life? All right, so then I talk about being systematic, and then finally I talk about how to receive notes. And I talk about, so you've reached the end, but all we've talked about is how to give notes and not how to receive them. One reason of this, of course, is that you don't have much choice in the matter. You just say thanks, you read them, and you weep. But I say the real question is, how do you handle notes that don't have the level of sensitivity and specificity that we've discussed here? And I say the answer is simple. You just reverse engineer the process. The notes you get might not follow these steps, but treat them as if they did. Forgive and filter out the note giver's emotion. Forgive and filter out any less than charitable assumptions the note giver made. Ignore any references to gurus or to the rules or to the market. Just treat those notes as one person's individual opinion, which is what they are. I talk about on your first read through, skim over everything but the praise and assure yourself the note giver isn't rejecting you or your project outright. Once Impossible. Accept- <laughs> yes, it's hard to do. Once you accept that, then go back, read the whole thing and take their criticism seriously. And finally, categorize the criticisms and evaluate what this critique has to say about each of your separate skills. And then finally, I say, even if you found the notes infuriating, thank the note giver profusely and ask for the chance to offer up your own strong, sensitive notes for the note giver's current project. Any set of unpaid notes is a huge favor, and you now owe it in return. So you say you're not the best note giver. How are you as a note receiver? Uh, depends on the note giver. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, if if the note giving is hostile and belittling, uh, I don't take it well. Even if, but I mean, sometimes it's not intended to be, but you can take it that way. I mean, I, I say yeah. you. I mean, one. Sometimes one. <laughs> sometimes one takes notes 
sometimes one is like, oh, this note giver clearly hates me if they would give me these notes. And then you're you're sort of aware, okay, that's not the case. It just feels that way. I, I think I peg it to who's giving it. Mm-hmm. I understand the personality of who's giving it. And I kind of think of it in terms of that. D- different people have different strengths in what they're going to uh, assess. And some people aren't even going to like the genre or the kind of thing that you're writing. And maybe they understood and liked the previous thing that you wrote, but you're striking out in a new direction now and they don't understand that. You, you know, uh, they expected you to write the thing that you wrote before. Right. I think it's case by case. I find the notes that are valuable are the notes from people who know. I mean, my brother in law, Chris. Uh, and his wife, Elise, gave really good notes on both Bride of the Tornado and uh, Dare to Know and The Order of Oddfish. And so did my wife. Um, I, I think maybe this is an exception. Okay, the person who can't be trusted is a person who's a friend. The people yeah. who are, are true intimate can give good notes. The person who is a mere acquaintance or colleague can give good notes. A friend can't. <laughs> so there's a there's a certain bell curve here. Yes, because these people, they, they want you so badly to succeed that they are going to bend their advice in, in, in such that way. I mean, I don't know, it, but it depends person by person because uh, Chris and Elisa and Heather are just very well-read people who understand stuff, but they're not writers. And so they're not trying to say, you should do this, you should do that. I think the worst is if a note giver says, you should do this, you should do that. And that was my problem as a note giver is that I would try, I would take it in the spirit of improv. And I would say, I would try to yes and their manuscript. Yes, your character is on the moon. And what if, you know, this moon base was blah, blah, blah. Like I would, uh, I would try to add my own creativity into it. And I think that, and I would, I would give, alternate ways things could go or i would say you know you know you should add a character that that does this and i was approaching it as a writer and maybe some people respond well to those kind of notes but i don't think i do i don't think a lot of people do and i think that's the error in the way that i give notes that was always a really tricky thing for me giving professional notes is that I would say, okay, I'm not believing, I'm not caring, I'm not investing. Like, here we are, we're in the first 20 pages. I don't really have a believe moment. I don't really have a care moment. I don't really have an invest moment. And then I would think of one and I'd be like, if something like this happened, then well, I would try to find something in there. And I'd go like, on page 121, you've got a great care moment, but it's too late. So I think if you move that up very frequently, I would get to the fifth page, almost always the fifth page. And I'd say like, okay, this should be the first sentence. Uh I think you've got a sentence here that would be a very strong launch to the book if this sentence on your fifth page was on your first page. But often I would go like this thing that happens on page 120, that would really make me care about the character right away instead of only really caring about the character, only feeling this character's pain on page 120. And that's what I would try to do. But sometimes I would create things out of whole cloth. Sometimes I'd be like, if something like this happened, then that would make me believe Karen and Fest all at the same time. So the novel, the last big honking novel that I gave notes on, I was like, this is a great novel. This is a brilliant novel. I read this novel and I'm like, okay, this is clearly a memoir. Because it's so vivid, it has to be a memoir. And it's so packed with humanity, it has to be a memoir. And But I know you're not that old. I know you're not old enough for this to be a memoir. And in fact, it was based on her parents' lives, it eventually turned out. But I was like, you must be 80 years old, because this is an extremely vivid book about 
growing up in another country in 1952. But I'm not really, so I'm totally believing, but I'm not really caring or investing until too late. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I work with what they give me, but I'm like, she eventually deals with, she eventually goes through a tremendous amount of suffering much later. And if we could have an incident that foreshadows that suffering here in the first 10 pages. So for instance, this, if this happens, and it's, Uh I know it's very tricky giving notes like that. And especially because then I feel, I keep going back to it. I feel compelled to after that go like, so for instance, if you took that suggestion I made, here is another way that would play out. And here's another Uh part that would be strengthened by that. And here's another part that would be strengthened by that. And the whole time I'm going like, the last thing she's going to want to read is me going back and back and back to this thing. If she was like, don't tell me stuff I could be doing. Right. I mean, for me, like I, I can analyze things, but I'm not a fundamentally analytical person. I'm an intuitive and creative person, I guess. And my solutions for anybody's problems are going to be creative and they're going to be my creative ideas of what should happen, not like an analytical, like you broke this rule or you know what I mean? And so that's right. another reason why I'm a bad note giver, because I just want to rewrite it yes. and just make it good. And I think that there is a danger if you've just given too many notes and you've read too many shitty manuscripts, then you're not going to realize a good one when you see it, because when something is in front of you, not on your Kindle or on, printed on a page, but in that Microsoft Word document, it sends a subtle signal to you that says, this is shitty because right. it is something that has been given to me to edit. And now I have to assume that it's bad. Right. Um, and, and so, and so that you, you, you say, Oh, they didn't do this by page five. Huh? I've seen this one before. And, and, then, and then you kind of, your mind starts going down some kind of well-worn tracks and, and then maybe missing something that they're trying to do that is out of the norm of what you're expecting or what you think the rules say should happen. Okay, James. Well, this is good. I was afraid that we would... I've given you notes in the past that you thought were hurtful. You've given me notes in the past that I thought were hurtful. We have a whole contentious history with this. We're trying to do episodes that are less contentious, but I think we've actually gotten a good discussion out of this uh, without... I think we each said our piece about how how dare you, sir? How dare you, sir, say that notes should be like this when the notes you gave me were not like this? And then we've, we've said our piece... Uh, or failed to give... And we've set our piece and then we moved on and then we've talked about our own history with giving notes to other people, which aren't as contentious as the history of the notes we gave to each other. And I think we've said a lot of good stuff today. Okay, James. Well, congratulations again on your new book coming out Thank you. and your big party. I'm sorry I couldn't make it to your party yesterday or your appearance at the uh, Lit Festival, but it's just fantastic news. And I hope that your sales are good. I know your reviews are good. And that's all an author can ask. Think I, I got I got to ask Matt. Your wife is reading my book right now. Are you going to read the final version of the book? I will. Is there's when does the audio version come? As the audio it's, is the audio book out, out yet? It's, it's out now. Audible. It's on I, Audible. I've got Audible credits all saved up. I will listen to your audiobook. Ah, there you go. See, uh, they gave me three choices uh, of who's going to read the audiobook. They they sent me like the voices. And um, and they chose the guy that I recommended. Oh, so good! I feel happy about. It. I haven't heard it yet. Um, 
one thing I'm curious about is that there are literal diagrams in the book, and I don't know how they're going to handle that. Yeah. Um, like I gave some ideas, but we'll see what happens. I had an idea of like, well, what if you pan, you know, a, a, a tone going this way and you pan another tone going that way. And, and then that kind of gives the idea of the diagram. They're like, don't worry, we'll take care of it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I, I Thanks, had a whole James. like Sergeant Pepper idea that, um, <laughs> that I, I don't know if it's going to happen. Yes. Uh, so, Yes. No, I'm looking forward to doing that. Yes, they let Betsy audition some readers for her book as well. I They haven't, you know, my book has been pushed back to, originally all three of our books were supposed to come out the same time. And yeah. instead, your books did not get pushed back. My book did get pushed back. So you and Betsy both have books coming out this month. And When exactly does her book come out? What is your exact publication date, Betsy? October 5th. October 5th? Ah, okay. That's a big day. I have, I have another friend who has a book coming out that day. Uh, Jocelyn Johnson uh, has a book called uh, uh, My Monticello that uh, got like blurbed by like, Colson Whitehead and Roxanne Ooh. Gay. She's a friend Ooh. of mine from like back when I used to live in DC. Um, and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to reading hers. Like she, she's getting like the full publicity push and she deserves it. Um, so I'm like she's been on NPR already and all kinds of stuff. I'm I'm very very proud of her. But let, let's let's uh, let's uh, uh, um, promote Betsy's book though. Why don't you tell them the the uh, the the title and what it's about? Yes, my wife's new novel is called Long Road to the Circus. It is based on a family story of hers. At one point in its development process, it was called Ostrich Girl. It's about a girl who rides an ostrich, who discovers a former circus performer, owns a ranch near her, and it is hilarious. It is a wonderful book. It is illustrated by David Small, who was who grew up around Betsy, and it turns out now lives on the land that was owned by this circus performer. And he's a big deal, children. He is a very big deal. And it is a wonderful book. So I highly recommend that you get James's new novel, Dare to Know. I highly recommend you get my wife's new novel, Long Road to the Circus. Uh, And my own book was also supposed to come out this fall. It has now been pushed back to April, April 2022, which (laughs) sounds, 2022 still sounds far away. It won't for very long. But we have a beautiful cover, which I can't wait to show to you guys. And uh, we are going through that whole process on that. So we've all got books coming out. And it's all you know, uh, uh, Betsy and I have something in common. We've both written books about girls uh, riding around on ostriches. Yes, yes. You've got ostrich riders in Order of Oddfish. So you've both... Uh, I, it's you, a Michigan thing. You wouldn't understand that. You're both Michigander authors and you've both got girls riding ostriches. I I feel left out that I've never done the same. Okay, <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming out tonight. I think we've uh, got a good episode here. We will see you guys soon. Hopefully this episode will finally come together with this uh, person. And it'll be a good sort of the working title, I think, for the episode was going to be competing notes, where we were going to give the same person notes and see if our notes jibed. So it would be a good sort of follow up to this episode if that episode comes together. Yeah. You know, we've kind of totally left by the wayside the whole free story idea thing. Because you wanted to stop doing it. Yeah, but uh, I thought you'd continue to resist me on that. It, Whose turn was it? 
<laughs> I don't know. I oh, yeah. I would love to do. I've got lots of I, free story ideas that I think we could get whole episodes out of because I think we've gotten some good episodes out of that. So let's it, go ahead. And you do know, it should it should be it should be Matt's story corner. We should go ahead. Let's go ahead and do an upcoming episode. I think we should do my rock climbing script. I think I should pitch my rock climbing script, which I think this is a good example because it was something you just totally didn't like. And uh-huh. I could have easily. I don't think I read the script. I think I, I, you just told me the concept. No, that's it's just a treatment. All that exists is a treatment. And I gave you everything I had. I gave you the whole treatment. And you were like, no. <laughs> I think that it might be interesting to actually try to get an episode I out mean, of it. What, what do pushing, I know? Pushing I you hate... past. No. Yeah. Well, what, what do I know? I hate Marvel movies. And they're the most like, like, you know, culturally salient thing in the world right now. Uh, I'm a, uh, so, I mean, what do I know? What do you know? What does anybody know? Nobody knows anything. Okay, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novels, Dare to Know, and The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. Our music is by Haddon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.